it's pretty funny, but sometimes the failure of the public sector to actually create a robust economy is the thing that is going to push people into entrepreneurship and the, it goes the other way around in Portugal. The golden age of the Portuguese startup ecosystem was in the crisis. Hello, Global Startup Tribe. Welcome to another episode from the Global Startup Movement. On the podcast with me today is Eli David. Eli is the co-founder of StartupBlink.com, where him and his team work with dozens of governments and municipalities all over the world on promoting and mapping their startup ecosystems. Eli is coming to us live from TechCrunch Disrupt right now in Berlin. Eli, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Andrew, for inviting me. So how's everything in Berlin right now? So it's good. It's actually one and a half days before the event. I just traveled to Berlin now and I'm really excited of, uh, you know, the opportunity to meet so many interesting people in this event. Conferences have become a major part of what we do. We kind of noticed that conferences are a great venue to meet decision makers from all over the world. I didn't give it enough importance. So uh, only in the last four months, I think I've been in uh, six conferences it's been relatively hectic on my travel schedule, but I think conferences are, are underestimating, like people are underestimating, underestimating the, the potential of conferences to connect you with everyone that is doing something in the ecosystem. So I'm really excited about that. And Berlin is a great ecosystem as well, as you know. Yeah, I agree. I think personally, I just have conference fatigue. There's just so many different conferences that I need to go to that and now every region has their own like quote unquote leading tech summit of the region. And so I agree that conferences are something that can accelerate your business because they can gather all of your stakeholders or all of your customer base in one location. And you can have many, many conversations back to back to, to validate a new direction or new offering or whatever it may be. But I do have to admit, I'm, I'm definitely getting conference fatigue. And it's maybe just a result of traveling, traveling throughout Africa is, 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 is very tiring. I'm actually very new. I'm only four four months in the conference game. So I think I can kind of like still, but I see what you mean. I, I'm, I'm there as well. And so how, how much time are you spending in Europe? Europe is a very interesting ecosystem in general. I, I Like as a, as a continent, they have some kind of a very active ecosystem development strategy that you don't see anywhere else. They're very policy driven. So a lot of my time recently has been in Europe, with a few travel from from here to there, I was just in uh, in uh, Cape Verde. I kind of like got inspired by you, Andrew, and all your uh, uh, expeditions to to Africa to kind of like uh, restart an ecosystem and kind of like develop an ecosystem. So I kind of did the same. That was absolutely great and a very very distinct experience. But Europe, on the ecosystem level, I think on the development level, they have the most uh, let's say robust strategy on how to promote ecosystems and how, how to also guide ecosystems to success. I actually have a few takes on, on the strategy in general of the European strategy, but at least they're trying, which is pretty good. Definitely, I want to I hear your takes and I, want you, I definitely want you to expand on what you mean by Europe is doing a better job on the policy side. I think the biggest problem that Europe has to face is is just the market fragmentation. Even if you win Germany as a market or Serbia as a market or whatever it may be, in order to become a unicorn, I mean, you, you probably need to capture three or four different European markets in order to reach, reach that level. 
And so I think that's one of the main problems that entrepreneurs in, Europe's, in, in Europe have, have to face. Europe is a little bit fragmented. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Africa in the sense of, okay, there is a European Union, so there is some kind of a shared policy in a way, but uh, you can't really see a lot of similarities or a lot of connection between the Spanish startup ecosystem and the Polish startup ecosystem for example, or the Greek startup ecosystem and so on. So in a way, I think Africa and Europe are both facing uh, the same challenges of saying, okay, there is a European market, but actually there isn't. Because if there is not shared language and uh, there is not very closely integrated, uh, let's say, trade strategy and so on, like you have between the states in the USA and so on, it's difficult. So sometimes I think that the focus on the unity of saying, okay, this is one geographical chunk is not necessarily correct. Probably the, the same situation happens in, in Africa. I don't know enough, enough about it. But in Europe as well, this sense of unity. But then again, you uh, are not consuming the same products and the products are not also in the same language. So it seems like kind of in, in, some, in some capacities, forcing a strategy cannot be done on a continental level. Although we like to say Africa or Europe, so many distinct uh, markets that it can get a little bit confusing as well. So it's not necessarily a, an advantage in a way. One thing that you mentioned on your website is that English-speaking countries seem to have stronger ecosystems. And so that's something that we're seeing in Africa as well. Francophone, the French-speaking African countries are falling behind the Anglophone ones. But at the same time, you're actually seeing... A, a lot of the business community and a lot of the the startup ecosystem in the francophone countries are actually starting to to focus on English. One of the challenges if you're sitting in francophone Africa is is in raising capital because a lot of the capital that is flowing into Africa isn't coming from France. There, there are some French VC funds, but it's mainly coming from China, from the US, from the UK, you know, not not from French speaking countries. And so African markets I think are more similar than they are different versus in Europe. And it's not just the language, right? It's it's the consumer behavior. It's it's the habits and the cultural norms of selling into B2B or selling a B2C product is much more, in my opinion, fragmented in Europe than it is in Africa. But I would be curious to learn more about some of the underlying data that you use and that you analyze when you're ranking these different startup ecosystems. Because your, your ranking is, is a lot different than some of the other like startup genome rankings and how it how it ranks different different regions and different countries. So I'd be curious to learn more about this data that you're you're looking into. Yeah, the language thing is first of all really really interesting. Going back to the previous point, in the end it's English, and anyone who is kind of telling themselves that it's not English is probably wrong according to what we've seen. If you want to go global, it's English. I do think there is a little bit of advantage on. Maybe if you are speaking French and whatever, when you're in the initial phases, leverage on this. And then you can kind of do your trials and errors before you actually uh, go, uh, go global into a more focused niche ecosystem that has less competitive uh, competitors. But in the end, you're going to have to transition to English. So yeah, the, the, the report is pretty interesting. As you mentioned, it, we're going on a different uh, approach on the report. The idea in the report is more than anything in the rankings. And it's based on a very let's say, elaborated algorithm that has about 20 moving pieces currently, you can put it in about three baskets quantity, which is basically asking the question, how many? How many startups? How many co-working? How many meetups? How many accelerators? Uh, the other is quality, how good they are. We check each uh, website of each startup that is in the ranking to kind of figure out how much traffic and so on. 
And after that, we also check the business environment. I think maybe the most interesting thing in the rankings and the methodology is not making assumptions. Because one of the things we figured out is that we do not want to build a theoretical model on what makes an ecosystem successful. Is uh, immigration good or bad? Is gender equality critical for a success on an ecosystem? Is uh, cost of living uh, important that it would be as low as possible? Again, it's like chaos theory. You don't really know. And we we decided we don't want to go there. So instead of assuming what makes a healthy ecosystem, the focus of the ranking that we've built is basically checking the situation as it is now and not checking, let's say, the causality or the reasons of why we think what makes an ecosystem good uh, creates a good ecosystem, but just check how is the ecosystem doing exactly now. And that's why we're checking the situation as, as it is on the ground, how many and how good, instead of deciding what is good, uh, because we honestly don't know. And I think I, I dare to assume that nobody really knows. You know? So the, the idea is to click of a button, get the algorithm running after we set it up, after we clean the data, after having this robust sample we have on startuplink.com, we have about 70,000 startups on the map. We're also teamed up with a few global partners like Crunchbase, SimilarWeb, and uh, SEM Rush that are also giving us integrations. And then just check what's going on instead of assuming what is good and what is bad. And so one thing that's consistent that I see happening all around the world is China's growing influence on other countries and internally. And so on your ranking this past year, I saw China was out of the top 20. And so why, why do you think that is based on your algorithm? Excellent question. This is, this is probably the most hit that we've been getting. And I knew that we're going we're gonna to get it also for this report. Uh, we're checking we're, the ranking uh, that we're doing is the global startup ecosystem. And that basically means that in order to be there, you have to be not domestically oriented, but uh, go global. And uh, China's startup ecosystem is pretty unique. It has amazing talent, good things are happening there and so on and so on. But the idea is that it's not uh, outward driven in a way. You see a few examples recently of this growing. So I have a feeling that this is going to grow and the rankings are going to improve. But uh, what we're checking is basically the uh, the startups that are kind of approaching the world. China is such a big uh, a country with such a big market that they've made some kind of a strategic decision to go internally, domestically. So um, in a way, you have Chinese internet, in a way. Uh, in the Chinese internet, China will be ranked first because it's their own version of the internet and they're doing outstanding things there. But the actual ability to influence the global startup ecosystem is relatively limited. You can see that if you now browse your phone, for example, and check the applications that you're using, one out of 50 would be a Chinese application. And that happens because uh, they're more geared towards domestic version of the internet. By the way, it could be a good strategy. Again, just like we talked about making assumptions before, I don't really know. That makes sense. Well, I think TikTok might be changing that. I mean, TikTok just blew up. I mean, it just blew up this year. This is where your 2018 rankings. Exactly. So I'm sure, I'm sure China would, would definitely be moving mm -hmm. up on the top 20 as, as TikTok comes in, in my opinion, becomes a, a global competitor to Instagram and may overtake it, may not. But the other thing that, was in, that stood out to me in your report was specifically Rwanda. So Rwanda went up to 64 64. So you had you had South Africa at 51, Kenya at 52, Nigeria at 56, 
Egypt 60 and then Rwanda at 64. And so did you, did you do any deeper analysis on like what, what were the data points that Rwanda put forward that was, that were able to bring them into probably a top 50 by next year? More startups, more co-working spaces, more accelerators, and a lot more government involvement on the ecosystem. So that's the beauty of the algorithm. We don't need to know a lot about the ecosystems. It's good and bad in a way. But in the end, I have tell you, Andrew, when we uh, ran the rankings and I saw Rwanda jam about 100 sp uh, spots, it was totally off the rank in 2019. And in 2019, it, it, it registered the biggest jump I was sure it's a bug because <laughs> I said, okay, how can it be that, uh, but it's it, honestly, it's easier to jump when you rank lower. Uh, it's much more easier to make the movements where you're already in the top 50 or the top 40. They're doing well. The government is geared into entrepreneurship. I think uh, they have the ability of making decisions and making sure that they happen. Apparently the Rwandan government is doing a lot of efforts on, under, they kind of understood that startups are the wave of the future. Uh, so they're investing a lot in this field. And you see an exponential growth. Uh, unlike, uh, let's say, you see the uh, the reverse, for example, we've uh, identified in South Africa, for example. South Africa, I had very high hopes in 2017. I don't remember where it was ranked exactly, but it went higher and actually decreased. So uh, I was kind of hoping of South Africa to lead the pack in Africa to be in a situation that it becomes a true global hub. And it didn't happen. And uh, apparently now, according to our report, it can happen if I would have take take a guess, it might happen in Kenya, in Nairobi, or in the in Kigali, in Rwanda. That seems to be two locations that are on a very very good momentum. When the queen of the ecosystem, South Africa, is a little bit sliding, it seems like it's sliding down. Don't know a lot about the geopolitical situation or what happened in, in South Africa, but in many cases it's related to activities that are currently happening within the country and the support of the public sector promoting the ecosystem. So you see, you see the kind of the mirror image between what is happening with the public sector in uh, in Rwanda if compared to the public sector in South Africa. I still think that South Africa has the most potential, but simply according to the rankings that we have, it's going to the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that South Africa definitely has the most potential in Africa. I think, I mean, from a geopolitical standpoint, it's it's certainly one of the best governed countries and most just well well run, well organized countries on the continent. I think the the big Achilles heel is probably just the fact that there are a lot of state run companies, and the state run companies are very very inefficient and not very effective at at competing effectively in the marketplace. Like you were saying before, like in, in China or like in what I see in a lot of these Asian countries is the economy and there are, there are major assets that have either, you know, large state influence or largely state run, but they're very efficient. They're actually very well run. The problem in South Africa is, you know, that's, that's the case, but they're not well run. The reason I was actually in Ethiopia this past week is because a lot of the important assets that used to be run by the government, like the airlines, like banks, telecoms are now starting to become privatized and the market is opening up to international investors. And that's very exciting for a lot of people. And so, you know, I, I don't necessarily claim to be, be an expert on specifically the South Africa ecosystem, but if we can see more of these state run entities becoming privatized, the private sector coming in and doing its thing and increasing competition, I think that's, that's certainly a prerequisite to a thriving startup ecosystem. And a lot of these larger companies actually becoming customers for startups and, and investing in startups and launching their own venture capital funds. What do you see as as some of the some of the keys to these lower tier ecosystems actually moving their way up the rankings and 
what do you think is the most important thing for the government or the policy side of things to, to get I right? I think they're already getting it right. Say 10 years ago, if you would try to persuade governments in Africa or in other places like in East Europe or South America to put money into innovation and startup ecosystem, development startup ecosystem, you would not be successful. Even if you would have foreign donors to do that, it would be like, oh, really now you're pushing me into this, uh, something that I don't understand the benefits of and I don't feel like doing. Today, the beauty is that everyone understands how important startup ecosystems are. I'm sometimes a little bit worried that they give it too much of, uh, of importance. And everyone knows it. It's like, you know how humans are working? There is some kind of a, a seed and then it becomes a consensus. And now there is a consensus that if you want a robust economy and if you want to grow fast, regardless of how poor the country is, you must have a startup ecosystem. And this is like, it became kind of like, a, I wouldn't say a new drug, but some kind of a, something that, look, if you don't have a startup ecosystem that is thriving, you're, you're going nowhere. I don't necessarily still sure about what do I feel about this. Does every country or any city must have a, a robust startup ecosystem? You know what? I'm not sure. This is the consensus that is currently being uh, transforming all over the world, especially in Africa as well. And I think this is critical because you basically have public officials, the top people that are now into startups. And I think this is critical. This is a beautiful time for an entrepreneur to receive support from the government because the government is so psyched about this. And I see this, by the way, in the report. Um, I was very surprised in the report that we had in 2019, just six months ago, where we have prime ministers, ministers, many, many dozens of mayors speaking about this report. It became some kind of a, an obsession, which I think is important because the public policy decision makers are there. And that's the first step. Uh, because the worst situation that could have happened is that they would make entrepreneurs' life harder by bureaucracy, by fines, by actually not encouraging entrepreneurship. So the mindset has already happened. And it happened, by the way, not because of public policy, just a consensus, some kind of a human story around startup ecosystems in general that everyone is benefiting from. And I've seen this in Africa as well. So I think this is the first term. Now, the, the, the most important, let's say, phase after that, because this is an initial requirement, is will the private sector jump to the uh, swimming pool of entrepreneurship or would the government just spend a lot of money, which is the worst case scenario, basically. You might as well be apathic and not spending money if, if, if the money that you're spending is, is uh, not well spent. What I see in Africa more than anything, but also in other regions of developing uh, countries in the world, is that there is a cultural problematic mindset of, not problematic, by the way, it's a healthy, rational mindset of, let me get the nine-to-five job. You know, my country is moving forward for the first time. For the first time, I can be part of the not wealthy, but well-off middle class. And now you're asking me to take a risk and go on entrepreneurship path and so on and so on. So uh, we have to remember that there's been, there's been a massive leap here. But if only the public sector is going to be ecstatic about the, the promotion of the ecosystem and you don't have the youngsters and the elders as well joining this party, it's not going to work. It's going to basically be money not well spent. And how do you change perceptions, cultures, psychologies? This one is tough. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, and and by the way, I did see that a video of Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu shouting out Startup Link. So con congrats on that. Congrats on that. It's, it does seem like there are a lot of leaders that are talking about what you're doing. But you bring up a very interesting point that, especially in emerging frontier markets, the, the startup ecosystem exists next to a equal or bigger need for infrastructure investments, for ports, for airports, for good roads. It's very hard to develop a thriving startup ecosystem when there's not a 
sufficient road infrastructure. I mean, e-commerce isn't even a play in that in that world. And a lot of different African countries and Latin American countries and even Southeast Asia, there's these other needs and other investments that are needed. And a lot of these economies are just starting to get into or, or get their, their middle class out of poverty, right? And so startups have their place for sure, but it is an interesting conversation of, well, you know, we a lot of these countries it's this is like the first generation where they're not living in extreme poverty on like $2 a day. It's definitely an interesting conversation from that standpoint perspective. But one thing I do want to get your opinion on and and we've we've discussed it a couple times on the show. I'm not sure if you've incorporated it as a part of Startup Link or not, but what do you think about leveraging specifically GitHub activity by region by location as a judge of the actual act- actual like meat and potatoes activity going on in the ecosystem is, is that something you've incorporated into, into startup link not yet and i'm thinking about it I actually thought about this yesterday it's really funny that you mentioned it because just yesterday i took a note of doing that and i'm a little bit worried here on only one uh, one part of the the equation that sometimes the line between freelancing and entrepreneurship you can't even you can't even see the difference at some point the border is getting a little bit not not that clear there are some countries where you have a lot of freelancers and so on and they're creating amazing code but at the same time for example recently i've been in poland uh, poland developers are one of the best in the world absolutely amazing they produce giant qualities uh, quantities of code at the same time you don't see a lot of innovation so i think it's a it's a viable strategy but at the same time, you also have to think about, let's say, the code level and so on and so on. Who are really the entrepreneurs? Are there only coders and so on? Actually, the best entrepreneurs in the world, or the most notable ones, a lot of them don't know even one line of code. It's more of a mindset. It's more of a marketing, of a sales, of building a product, UX, UI, and so on and so on. So definitely, it's something that I want to incorporate, but I want to incorporate it in a way that measures entrepreneurship and not necessarily measures an army of developers, in a way, if this if this makes sense. So I'm a little bit uh, cautious about incorporating it, but I think it does make sense. So definitely a good point for for the future. But I also saw at the same time that in some locations where you have high quality uh, uh, coders and so on, you would also have less entrepreneurship just because the low cost of life will push all those coders to work for rich uh, clients from the West and then be in a situation that nobody's really starting a startup. You can see it in Poland, for example, or before. Now now you see more and more Polish startups, but it's, it's, I'm digressing a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not so... Uh, it's a lot because of government policies to push Polish startups into entrepreneurship. A good example of how government can get really, really too much involved in ecosystems. But to go back to the point, GitHub is a great, uh, great source, and I think I'm going to incorporate it. But I'm worried about this uh, unclear line between freelancing, coding, and the entrepreneurship itself. That brings up another good point, and actually, where I wanted to—I I guess where where I was going with that question—it's it's the difference of you know cultivating local developer talent and designer talent, and and how how does a country leverage that? What comes to mind is Argentina. So I have a friend you you might you might know her. I think she spent some time in Israel. Her name's Lisa Besserman. She started an organization called Startup Buenos Aires which became kind of the, the the central point of the ecosystem in Buenos Aires. And what she was actually able to do with that is turn or help to turn Buenos Aires into an outsourcing hub in, in Latin America. And so they were able to cultivate this local community of developers and, and get them work from companies. 
And that I think is something that we don't, obviously it's not glorified as much as like building a Silicon Valley style startup. But I think, you know, that high growth startups, it, it takes a certain type of temperament in order to, for an entrepreneur to actually build something like that. And so I think there are a lot of young people that kind of are, are sold this dream of, of building Facebook or Uber or, uh, or Twitter or WhatsApp, whereas, you know, they can make a lot of money and be successful with, with more of a, it might be an agency model. It might be developing a very specific freelancing skill. And there are a lot of economies in all, all around the world that are, you know, below 10 billion GDP economies where I think that a lot of local money and, and, and young people can actually create their own jobs and, and live in a, in, in a thriving manner from that standpoint, as opposed to, hey, you know, if you live in, in Haiti or Rwanda or a, a very small country with a, a small to non-existent local market, you know, maybe, maybe you are better off going in that direction as, as a young person. And so, and so there's certainly a balance to be had between the two. I agree with you. I think that, uh, I'll just add on the, on the freelancing one. It's, it's, it's good. It's a good first step, but uh, it connects again to what I talked about before on the culture. So the idea is that in Israel, for example, if you're working for Google or, or for Facebook, you're going to quit after a year or two and you're going to start your own thing. And the, the golden trap that you're trying to avoid is basically to have people working their entire careers as freelancers for other companies. So the idea is that if you mix the skills that a, a good development, a, a, let's say, ecosystem has with a few success stories, then you're starting to a little bit steer the pot, you know, and be in a situation that some of those high quality uh, employees are just going to leave and build their own startup. So that's the best case scenario. But I feel that in many, many cases, it doesn't happen. You actually have some kind of a cannibalism element of more people going to work for other companies, developing their code and doing less of it, you know, for them. That's one of the reasons sometimes that some people are asking us, do you put uh, the presence of Google in an ecosystem uh, if they put their own headquarters and so on and they hire developers from an ecosystem? Is it good and bad or bad? And I honestly never know because on the, on the flip side, like basically it creates a lot of knowledge. It gives abundance. It gives people resources. On the other side, it also creates a situation that people have safe and comfortable jobs and they don't go on the entrepreneurship path. So something that is relatively interesting, we've seen that in some countries that are not functioning that well, uh, let's say that you, you below European standards in Europe, for example, Ukraine or Serbia, the ecosystem is doing amazingly well. And why does it happen? It happened because people kind of a little bit disconnect from the economy in a way and they say, you know what, I give up. It's not going to work. If I'm going to immerse myself in the Ukrainian economy or in the Serbian economy currently in the way it is, it's not worth it. I have to go global. Kind of like, it's pretty funny, but sometimes the failure of the public sector to actually create a robust economy is the thing that is going to push people into entrepreneurship. And the, it goes the other way around. In Portugal, just as a side note, the golden age of the Portuguese startup ecosystem was in the crisis. Basically, everything failed. And you kind of understood that you have to do it on your own. So starting 2008, really good things started to happen in Portugal's startup ecosystem. And now when you have this economic recovery, mainly boosted by good government policies, a lot of those startup people are going and getting real, getting jobs in, uh, in, in those conglomerates and so on. So it's, it's actually pretty interesting how chaotic it is, how you think you can control it. 
and you can't like how you think even even doing well is sometimes going to do damage and that's that's pretty much one of the most interesting lessons that i've got that as a public policy and so on you you never know what the results are going to be from from your efforts and it's it's pretty funny as well in a way so mm. yeah well necessity is the mother of invention and so when you have a mm-hmm. country like that where you have to you have to focus on the international market sometimes because of that fact it creates it creates global unicorns but the point on google and facebook coming into a country and creating a headquarters i think it's good and bad it's good if it sucks up a lot of local development talent they get trained and then they leave a few years later to go back into the startup ecosystem it's bad if it sucks up the developer talent they become comfortable they like their salaries with you know, they like their salaries working with google and facebook and then they either move to maybe Silicon Valley or they don't leave and they, you know, and so I think it's, it's a double-edged sword depending on how it plays out in the local ecosystem. I think that, so, I mean, really this last startup bubble started maybe 08, 09. And at first it was like, everyone was very excited whenever one of the big tech companies would open a big, a big hub in their country. But now I'm starting to see more pessimistic outlook on it. I think specifically it was in Warsaw. I think it was in Warsaw where Google announced the campus. Uh, and then there was a lot of um, pushback against from, from the local ecosystem on that because they, they saw the, the bad side of it where, you know, it, it's just going to suck up a lot of developer talent. I, I mean, at this point, Google, all, all the big tech companies, I mean, they have their hub in almost every major tech city in the world. I don't know. I mean, how are you, are, are you seeing that play out in a good or bad way? It depends way? on the culture. So if okay. Google opens something in Israel, because of the cultural pressure of, uh, it's pretty interesting. If you're going to go working for Google or Facebook in Israel, uh, people will look at you and say, hmm, a little bit disappointing, you know, like, okay, you sold out in a way. Like the, the, uh, if someone is going to work in Portugal for Google, everyone's like, whoa, you achieved the dream congrats you know like this is absolutely amazing so the idea is that i'm less worried about the presence of those uh, companies as long as the culture is there to kind of balance it out and kind of say okay make money now but you're selling out now it's not really what you were intended to do Uh, in ecosystems like uh, portugal or let's say even in africa and so on uh, it would be less beneficiary because people will get stuck just because the social pressures are built in a totally different way than it is in Israel. What is what is a win in Portugal would be a disaster. Not a disaster, but would be a mild disappointment in Israel. And that makes all the difference. Uh, however, I have to say, if Google and Facebook do open developer centers in Africa, I think it would be absolutely amazing because you have to start from somewhere. So even if you're transitioning into, uh, let's say, a freelancing hub, that's much better than having nothing at all. But at some point, just like at some point the, the public sector has to let go and let the private sector move, at some point the ecosystem itself has to thrive on innovation from its own local entrepreneurs and not specifically on investment from the outside that are basically there only to build someone else's dreams in a way. So it's a very, uh, let's say it's, it's a very delicate balance, but at the same time you have to start from somewhere. And so. If you would ask me about Africa, and I don't know that much the situation there, the, the first country I ever traveled to uh, in Africa is Cape Verde, uh, and that's not only uh, not also in, on Central Africa, uh, on the continent, I would say take whatever opportunity you've got. 
every time a Google shows up or even some company, even in lesser degree of Google, every time someone wants to hire your entrepreneurs to be developers and so on, let them have it, uh, let them have it as long as it's not the public sector. One of the things I've seen recently is that uh, in some